Lyme disease is a tough thing to live with, even on its own. Worse yet, it can come with co-infections, pathogens that occur along with Lyme disease. We're just starting to find out how many pathogens these little arachnids carry and pass on to their human hosts. Bartonella, Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever, just to name a few. On this Looking at Lyme podcast, we're going to meet a doctor with expertise in Lyme and the co-infections that accompany it. So, just how prevalent are co-infections? A recent American survey of over 3,000 patients with chronic Lyme disease found that over half had co-infections, with 30% reporting two or more. That's scary stuff. Dr. Thomas Moorcroft sees it all the time. He's a member of the ILADS Evidence-Based Lyme and Co-Infections Working Group. We reached him in Connecticut. Hello, Dr. Moorcroft. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. You're so welcome. Thanks for having me. I'm calling you today from British Columbia, Canada, and I, along with many other people, saw you present at the International Lyme and Associated Diseases Conference over the past weekend, and it was a wonderful learning experience, and I know that your presentation focused a lot on co-infections, and I, I'm wondering if we can just start by you telling me what are co-infections? Sure, and yeah, thanks. I mean, it was, it was a great conference, and I'm glad so many people were able to check it out. Um, yeah, I think it's a really important question. Co-infection really at the simplest level means that we have more than one infection at the same time. And within the Lyme disease community and, and people treating tick-borne illness, we often use the term co-infection kind of loosely. But when what we really mean is a tick-borne co-infection, meaning like if you get bitten by an exoides tick, like, such as the deer tick, you, you could get Lyme disease, babesiosis, anaplasma, Borrelia mimotoi, and things like that from this one tick bite. And so that, and you know, the other thing that happens with co-infection would be we have concurrent co-infection, like maybe I have Lyme disease from the summer, then I go to school and I get strep, uh, strep throat infection. Those are, te- you know, Lyme and strep are technically co-infections existing in your body at the same time, albeit they didn't come from the, the same tick bite. Um, but, you know, typically when you're talking in the Lyme community, we say co-infection, we, we, we're typically talking about what you can get from the same tick bite. Right. So when you get a tick bite, you can often have many different pathogens that enter your body at that time. Right, exactly. And, it, and it's interesting um, because so many, so much research is going into that, uh, it, you know, over, over the years and Really, in the last several years, we've started to see people revisit it. It's kind of like in the mid-90s, we had a lot of co-infection work, and then on 10, we had a little bit more, and then more recently, people have revisited it. And we're really finding that um, when we talk about Lyme disease, it comes from that exoides, uh, the bite of an infected exoides tick. And as I was mentioning, some of the real big players that we can get would be uh, babesiosis, and there's multiple species of that anaplasma, Borrelia mimotoi, uh, even Powassan virus. And I presented at ILAD several cases of people with uh, known tick bites. They'd gotten one tick, and they got between three and five different pathogens from that single bite. And what's, what's interesting, or, or it's unfortunate, but it's also interesting and, and we need to be aware of, is that when we have more than one tick, one infection, one pathogen that we get from a tick bite, 
we don't, our symptoms often overlap a lot. And so that's where people say, oh, you can't possibly have all these things. I'm like, well, you can because you actually have more than one infection from that tick bite. And when we get that overlap, sometimes we, it's almost like a synergy of symptoms. We start to see, you know, complex presentations that are often confusing. And then the diagnostics, you know, the, the laboratory testing can be more complicated uh, one of the points I love to bring up is that the testing that we've done is really validated for one pathogen in one host. So I, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, we artificially infect a laboratory animal with Lyme disease, and then we make sure that that test works, and then we use it in human beings. We haven't validated a test where you have Lyme and Babesia currently concurrently in the same host, and so we don't even know if the lab tests are going to be a- as accurate or not or potentially more accurate. And so what we see in people is often you'll have a situation where one lab will be positive for a while and then that'll get better and then another one will become positive. And we're not, you know, clinically, it typically follows what's going on symptomatically, but it's, we don't have enough research. And I'd love to see researchers kind of dive into infecting an animal and really verify if our tests are, are effective or not. And what is Bartonella, and what are some of the signs and symptoms? Yeah, so Bart—that's <laughs> like the can of worms, isn't it? <laughs> um, <laughs> Sorry. If you want to open Pandora's box, go there. Um, so Bartonella um, is is a bacterial infection. Um, there has been some evidence that it can be found in ticks. If you uh, the same ticks that give Lyme, you know, transmit Lyme disease. If you look at Bartonella. One of the things that I find really interesting is that, or the research on what, when it's in ticks, is you find some researchers find it and other researchers don't find it. And then, you know, there is some evidence that it, if it is in a tick, it can be transmitted to a mammal host, but there's not a lot of it. And what I tell people is most people know it as cat scratch disease or the causative agent of that. And so we, we found that you can get Bartonella from... Um, potentially from ticks, but also you can get it from a cat scratch or a cat bite. Uh, and that's kind of the more commonly under, you know, known uh, things in medicine. But then you also have this possibility of, you know, getting it from uh, fleas or lice. And so I often will see in a classroom situation where we'll, uh, lice will go through the classroom and then there'll be a few children who develop OCD acutely or ADHD. We have acute onset of ADHD uh, syndrome, like, you know, in five kids all out of the blue. And so it is one of these scenarios where we, you know, have to be aware that there is other transmission uh, possible. And also not only just cat scratching bites, but the mites that are on cats can transmit it. And then also even potentially spiders. And so I, there's debate of whether it's truly a tick-borne co-infection or just a co-infection. And what I know is I see it in a lot of my patients and when I it gets better. So that's the most important thing. Um, some of the typical symptoms that we see, um, in, you know, in patients who have foreign uh, infection and also a Bartonella infection are things like the typical things like uh, muscle pains and pains. We certainly see headache and, you know, fatigue some of the more specific things is we may see um, sort of neuropathic or numbness and tingling symptoms. They can often be either one-sided or they could actually be migratory. So like in Lyme disease, you see a lot of migratory joint pain. 
connections to migratory neuropathy and Bartonella. Um, also, um, some people will get like muscle fasciculations that are kind of come and go. So it'll almost look like their muscles are moving under their skin and even tremor. And lots of people have things like foot pain or heel pain. Some of the other things that are really um, more, you know, those are very concerning, but things that really impact people on a day-to-day is a lot of cognitive impairment. You know, we have uh, issues with executive function, um, impaired working memory, even like delays in processing speed, um, as well as some, you know, we, we see some mild anxiety and depression-type symptoms. And Bartonella, compared to some of these other infections, tends to also lead to weird, some of these oddities, such as like an OCD-type presentation or even a, in people who, you know, they're previously very complacent, happy people now they're having rage outbursts. And, and in children, we'll often see sort of acute personality changes or regression. So um, meaning, you know, they were reading, writing fine or they were potty trained fine and now they've gone back to, you know, as if they were three or four years younger. Um, we also can see things you know, like tick disorders, meaning you know, verbal or auditory or physical tics, that almost like a Tourette's type of syndrome. And with the Bartonella also, it can um, appear very much like PANS and PANDAS, so the autoimmune encephalitis triggered by infections. And Bartonella is kind of a catch-22 because by itself it can look like PANS and not be PANS, or it can trigger PANS, so we would have both Bartonella symptoms and the PAN symptoms. Um, and that's where you really get a lot of OCD rage and behavioral changes uh, in our children. So it sounds like you're really honing your clinical skills to, uh, to help diagnose people. I'm just curious if there are other diagnostic tools that you use for detecting co-infections. Yeah, I, I think you nailed it right, right on the head. It's <laughs> got to be a clinical diagnosis. Yeah. We, we use laboratory data to, to support that. And you know, there are definitely um, tests that can be done, and part of our testing is our physical exam. Um, I think we often jump right into lab testing. One of the things is um, there are, um, you know, you can see fasciculations, you can see or hear ticks, and, you know, the eye blinking and the nose stuff. But there's also a thing called striae dispensiae, and this is sort of like where you get stretch marks that are kind of purplish um, to, you know, red-purple, and that's um, been shown to be um, potentially from Bartonella. They found Bartonella in these stretch marks. Um, and if those are blanchable, meaning if I push on them and they get skin toned and then I remove my finger and it you know, fills back up with blood, that's a possibly a symptom that, that, that the stretch marks you're seeing are actually from Bartonella. And, and from the diagnostic perspective, and, you know, from, from the lab work, I find that uh, I do pretty well combining that clinical approach with the lab data, and antibody testing is primarily what we're looking at for Bartonella. Uh, certainly, you know, you need to get it at the right lab, and you also have to know how to interpret the numbers. Um, but antibodies really are going to be the one that gives us sort of the best outcome. We, we do have the opportunity to uh, check for things like RNA and DNA. It's, it's a little less likely to pick it up, but it's possible. I think one of the important parts to remember, both with Bartonella as well as many of our other co-infections, is there's, there's significant literature supporting that there's a high, uh, initially a high false negative rate and that these tests may not be positive until after several months of treatment, kind of going back to that question of, you know, how accurate are, are our labs when we are co-infected?
I'm wondering if you can tell me about the preceptorship program with the International Lyme and Associated Diseases Education Foundation. Yeah, um, so the, the program's set up um, to give uh, practitioners who have gone through the Lyme Fundamentals uh, training program, that one-day course that gives them sort of the, the foundation, uh, and most people feel like they've been drinking from a fire hose once they've done that course. And so, you know, really, it's, it's a, they, they get the, the book knowledge, they get the references of where to go, and then the, the training program is an opportunity for them to um, work side-by-side side with a practicing clinician, you know, an experienced clinician who um, has been vetted and, you know, from ILADS and, and really has understands the fundamentals and what's being tr- trained in the fundamentals of Lyme and then allowing them to kind of come into their practice and shadow and, and really learn not only how to put the basics to use but also to see how this particular clinician um, really um, kind of integrates it into their, their, their global practice. And, and so it's great because there's, if you have a focus on pediatrics or you have a focus on an older population or if you want to use primarily medications or if you're somebody who mixes herbals and medications, it's all there, um, you, can have, you have those treatment opportunities. And you know, they offer a small stipend to help cover things. Um, you know, but mostly it's the practitioner taking advantage of an opportunity to do a week or two weeks uh, of training side-by-side side with someone who's an expert in the field. That sounds like a great way to put it all together. <laughs> That's how I got started. So, you know, it's like, because you know all this stuff, right? Like, you're starting to see these the, the patients come into your practice. You've gone to the conference. You get the basic information. You go to these really advanced, then you go to these advanced lectures. But the question is really, how do we put it together? And when, you know, medical training really is, we start with high-quality people, then we give them the book learning, and then we start to slowly over time work in the clinics with, you know, with different levels of supervision, eventually leading to the doctor practicing you know, on their own and feeling confident. And so then when we get out and we, we go to a lot of these specialty trainings, it's a matter of, wow, what do I do now? And to, there's so many places, and the thing that I find holds people back the most is, overwhelm. Where do you start? And so it's a really neat opportunity for people to see, hey, this is how one person puts it in, in, in you know, to work in their practice. So it's a place to start. And I was fortunate enough, you know, I did, I did my two weeks um, and one of the weeks was with one provider and one was with another provider, which I highly recommend people do. Most of the um, Mentorship clinicians are are always happy to help, even outside of the the you know, quote unquote official time in the office. But the idea really being that you know work with two people that really stimulate that that practice kind of like you want to to see how they implement it, so that then you can you know the provider can go back to their office and and really know a place to start, so that it kind of takes some of that fear of getting going and and uh, the fear of doing the wrong thing for the patient. You can really start to gain your expertise, and it's, and it's in a way that we've all grown up in through medicine. So it's, it's a nice program. That's great. Did you hear any research at the ILAD Scientific Conference that got you excited? Man, there, there, it's, it's like so much research. <laughs> it's like, you know, the, the updates on disulfiram, um, and I mean, I did an update on some of the Bartonella work that's been done. I think the thing that I really am impressed about is all of the, in the last 18 months, 
it's been like quantum leaps in Lyme persister work, Bartonella persister work, and, and really looking at how do we impact people who have been chronically sick for a long time, you know, um, in, in a way that's not 10 years from now, but in a way where, you know, we're, we're really speeding things up. And I, I also really liked, you know, the focus, uh, there was a big focus talking about the mental health side of things, because so many times, and I just got off the phone with my staff and we were talking about somebody's like, well, should I come back in for an evaluation because they had a flare? And then their, their therapist was like, well, you're just hypochondriacal. And there was a big focus on, re, on mental health research um, with Dr. Bransfield and Linda Williams and Leo Shea. And they, it, it was like really talking about trying to create some data as well as you know, teach people clinically of what to do, where we're looking at the whole person. Because I think often, you know, medicine, it's kind of like the physical part, and then you've got this mental health. And really what we learn with people in general, we should be thinking about, but definitely with people with chronic tick-borne illnesses, it's a full body, a full person experience, you know, body, mind, and spirit. And you've seen so much data come out on the scientific side what the mental health has just been a conversation. And this year we really had a conversation about uh, some of the mental health work, and, and that I think is really going to close the gap as well. So really excited about the mental health research um, and the, you know, the validity of these patients coming in with their experiences as well as some of the scientific breakthroughs that have really made a huge difference in our practice. Well, I'm very thankful that you're willing to step forward and share all of your knowledge and experience with other physicians and healthcare workers and advocates like me. Thank you so much for your time, and hopefully we can speak again in the future. All right. Yeah, you're very welcome. Thanks so much, too, for the opportunity. And, yeah, we look forward to chatting again soon. is Dr. Thomas Moorcroft, an expert on Lyme disease and co-infections. I was really impressed by the fact that he's willing to be mentored by other physicians, and it was great to learn about the preceptorship program. Dr. Moorcroft is a leader in the co-infection field, yet he is always willing to learn. And so are we here on Looking at Lyme. Thank you as well for listening, and stay safe in the outdoors. (laughs) 